be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. Welcome to the Building Hope podcast. We're featuring environmentally visionary architectural projects to explore how good design can build hope in a world facing a climate emergency. We're your hosts. I'm Julie Gabrielli, a professor of architecture at the University of Maryland. And I'm Vincenzo Perla, a current graduate student at the University of Maryland. As always, for those listening on a podcast platform, you can see images of these beautiful projects. We're on YouTube at Building Hope Pod, or you can look at our website, buildinghopepodcast.com. Today's topic is Building Hope with Resilient Adaptable Architecture. We talk with Ava Omidvar, whose project explores the history of adaptable architecture and proposes an arts community on a site in Southwest DC an area of the city already affected by climate change, but vulnerable to more extreme events in the near future. And we meet with Juhi Gol, who designed a mixed-use tower with an engineered wood structure on the Boston waterfront to give people experiences of a more climate-resilient future. We'll hear first from Juhi. So my site is in Boston, and when I was choosing it, they were two components uh, to my thesis. There was an interest in developing a climate action agenda and a didactic or a teaching component, which required a location that had to have a diverse audience. So those were the two things that I was looking for for my site. And I had some, spent some time in Boston before my master's, and I just really liked living there. So I thought it would be a good fit for this project. Um, the city was already rolling out some climate action programs, and I just needed a site within Boston that was located at the intersection of a few different public transit lines so that it would connect different parts of the city, which can otherwise feel pretty separate. And so around the time that I was scoping out locations for this, um, I came across this article about the Boston Harbor Garage going into redevelopment. And everyone was sort of lamenting this proposal for being yet another glass tower on the skyline that would do nothing for the community or the waterfront that it was located at. And, and I think in that moment, everything sort of clicked into place for me. Um, so it was right across from the New England Aquarium that was starting to roll out its own sustainability programs. And my site could plug into those sort of ideas of resilience and conservation. And the location was also very visible for the city and accessible to foot traffic from the aquarium, a bunch of public parks, parks around that area, and uh, monuments and destinations in Boston. Part of Ava's thesis is about understanding that development needs to happen even in areas where climate change and landscape change is going to happen. Unlike Boston or a city like Miami, Washington DC doesn't seem to be very affected by climate change. And so we asked Ava why she chose Southwest DC for her site. Southwest DC was a really great site for this. We don't typically think of Washington DC when it comes to climate issues, mostly because we don't have those extreme weather events yet. Though when I was working on picking my site shortly after, there were a lot of flood events actually that got a lot of attention in the media. 
And it really solidified my choice. I felt like I could tap in also to some of the just regional understanding of how it feels to live here. We asked Ava to tell us more about her project, and she spoke about how today's building codes are very prescriptive to what we see today, but they're not at all looking toward the future. And so one of the questions she was trying to answer was how can we make buildings adaptable from the start? And how can a building change over time as different conditions arise? So it has a better chance of lasting longer. And if it can't last in that location, how could it be relocated somewhere else in a reasonable way? And she was looking at the history of how buildings have been moved in the past and thinking about it for a multifamily project, an apartment building. And so she came up with a modular design that's meant to be prefabricated off-site and assembled on-site so that the parts can be moved more easily should the need arise. Um, So the big question is, how can we design something now that is looking towards the future, that is anticipating those changes? Um, And part of that is allowing the building itself to be adaptable. So I really wanted to look at mitigation strategies that exist. The first being to protect the next thing to accommodate, and then the last thing to retreat. And how can that all be encapsulated in a building so that as we face different pressures, as the decades go on, the building can react to it, can change, or can even move from its site somewhere else? I think when I'm thinking about your thesis, it's like, Okay, so we have all these historic buildings, this tradition of historic architecture, and that was great. And no one's saying that's a bad thing, but they had no idea really about limiting resources and climate change and whatnot. And now we do. So it's like, why are we still building our buildings in that same old tradition? We have all this new information. So we need new building like methods, right? Yeah, exactly. It's really about, you know, developing buildings for today is becoming a more irresponsible way of building. So when we know that the current floodplains are out of date, you know, the, the current building codes are not as stringent as they should be, the kind of structures that we use to design to today, they're not forward thinking, you know, adaptability is really the concept. It's a long-term forward thinking timescale. I feel like you were ahead of the times because I was recently going through an article that was also applying this approach to like a war-torn neighborhood in Ukraine, where, you know, there's a designer proposing that a building that might be half decimated by war could then start to be repaired through these sort of modular units that you could address as and how you wanted based on program or what used to be there and who it used to serve. And and it's so interesting to see that that could sort of be provided from the beginning as as the canvas to sort of work off of. It's one of the faces of resilience, let's say. It's what resilience looks like. Juhi, do you want to um, take this one for sort of what are the main points about your project? Sure. 
So my project was titled um, Inform Climate Action Through Didactic Architecture. So the premise was really that the climate has been changing and so must architecture. We need to deviate from and develop our building typologies, our materials and our systems. And so my thesis was to explore the design of a high-rise tower that was made entirely out of mass timber, which has a much lower carbon footprint than our traditional steel and concrete towers because of the ability of wood to capture and store away carbon. But it's also crazy because it hasn't been done before. And I think that the current capacity of mass timber in high rise is like 25 stories. And, and this project was making it go up to like 49 stories. Uh, so it's completely fantastical. There's a lot to unpack here. Setting aside that even now, the world's tallest mass timber building, The Ascent, just opened last summer in Milwaukee and it's only 25 stories. And that wood had to be shipped from Austria. So not a great carbon footprint there. But we did say that these projects are visionary, right? Aspirational. Yeah, I just saw that in Switzerland, they're planning to build an 86-story mass timber tower. Wow, that's a lot of trees. <laughs> but in California, which some would say is our most progressive state, or certainly one of them, um, they recently passed a new building code to allow a maximum of, get this, 18 stories for mass timber buildings. So we have a ways to go. The idea was really to let this building act as a sort of carbon sink for its neighborhood. Secondly, the project addressed a number of sustainable design practices with a very mixed use program so that it could invite and speak to a varied audience. That was a very important component. And finally, it employed these elements of didactic architecture through its design features to educate the users about their impact on the building and to really inspire them to actively participate in climate action along with the building itself. So these were the three main components to the project. The program itself consisted of about 35 floors of mixed income residences, and each floor had opportunities for urban farming. These were broken up by two sky lobbies that had these really weird and unique green facades that were made from algal carbon capture panels. Again, very fantastical. Uh, but this is something that um, I was learning about as, as this new technology that was coming out with its ability to capture carbon from the atmosphere. And I also thought it would make for a great splash of color in the sky. So Juhi's storing additional carbon from the air in her algae walls, which are these living building material. Algae is hot right now. You keep seeing articles about it, not just storing carbon, but also generating energy. Um, you know, they've done studies and tests for that, but now people are putting it in actual buildings. Yeah. So the world's first algae-powered building, I found out, was constructed in Hamburg, Germany in 2013. It's a 15-story concrete apartment building, and the facade of the building has 129 glass bioreactors containing algae. <laughs> wow. When the sunlight heats the building, the algae multiplies and generates biomass and heat. A management center then stores the heat in water and sends it around the building to heat the apartments. Yeah, I'm looking at it on ArcDaily, and um, it's pretty cool. The glass, it has. there's a picture of these two panels that are um, what you 
what you'd expect on a big apartment building, just fixed glass. And they are lime green. <laughs> um, but it makes me wonder if you can see out the windows. Yeah, like if you live here, you live in a, a green tilted. Yeah, it's just green tinted. Like everybody who in their apartment, your skin tone is kind of greenish. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, from the outside, it is a green building for sure. That's only one of many details that Juhi envisioned. And then there were four floors of office space that I envisioned as sort of green labs or sustainability based incubators, but those would contribute to the office programming of the building. And then there was an entire ground floor that was dedicated to somewhat green commercial use, so effectively an organic grocery store, a cafe that was focused on environmental eating, a storefront waste sorting facility that would be very sort of public facing and inviting at the same time, and then a large sort of public space uh, with plenty of public seating that was centered around a biofiltration pond. The idea really was to, to have against the back of downtown Boston, which is primarily composed of steel and concrete and glass, to have this symbol for change and to really call for buildings that not only incorporate elements of sustainable design, but shout them out and showcase them to kind of ignite a public discourse about what this means. Wow. I'm ready. I'm ready to move in. <laughs> I, I can picture those greenhouses because, you know, Boston is really pretty cold in the winter and snowy and and just like being able to spend time in those greenhouses if they were warm enough would be pretty cool. I agree, I'm dealing with that right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, January. <laughs> we asked Ava and Juhi how it's going now that they're working in offices. All of the things we do every day, I think in practice, that idea of sustainability can become pretty difficult when the day-to-day tasks are uh, very imminent. You know, we have deadlines that need to be met and sometimes things just need to get done. But everyone that I speak to really finds it to be important to them. And so my goal this year is to learn about ways to give those opportunities to professionals, to leadership, to to have the agency to really start to implement sustainability in our designs. I think with sustainability, it's it's such a strong case of feeling very deeply about it when we're students and we're, you know, passionate about it and graduating with it. And then knowing so little. (laughs) And it's been a real eye-opener in in sort of linking back to the conversations about sustainability um, that I've had with senior architects or other people in my firm. Because I feel like a lot of times, you know, we we learn these buzzwords and, and these sort of conditions that we need to work towards, like, uh, you know, it needs to have a tight envelope and, and, you know, has to have a great high performance design. And then you come to the workplace and you're like, what does that even mean? Uh, you know, I don't know what goes in a wall. <laughs> and so oh, I'm basically, no. I'm, I'm learning what goes in a wall. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> uh, and it's, I have to say, it's really cool. It's, it's exciting to sort of break it down and learn the parts of the pieces to, to understand what is done typically in order to make it better going forward. You know, there's just a lot, there's a lot to learn. And I'm definitely in that phase where I'm trying to absorb all of it. 
I think when you're in school, you're given a little bit more freedom to explore um, so many different pathways. Uh, and I think it's so important to do so. And I think once you come into practice, you see that there, there are just so many different factors that go into why that building looks that way. And a lot of it at the end of the day has to do with cost. And a lot of it has to do with time, which is related to cost. Um, this is a really good segue to uh, a question that um, I wanted to ask you all later, but I think I'm going to ask it now. Um, we decided <clears throat> to call this season one, I guess, of the, of the podcast, Patients in an Emergency. And it comes from something that um, one of my favorite writers and thinkers, um, Wendell Berry, said uh, in an interview that he had actually on Bill Moyer's show. And he said something like, young people ask this question, you know, like, what should I do? You know, everything's falling apart. The world is burning. Like, we got to get busy. Where do, we, where do we start? And can we get there already and fix everything? And he said, to be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. So I wanted to ask you, because you both talk so well about what it's like to be working in a firm and, and you know, the day-to-day effort that goes into all the learning uh, about everything to do with not even just putting buildings together, but even running a firm and, and getting the work done. Like there's just so much to absorb and practice and gain experience at. So what comes to mind when you hear that phrase being to be patient in an emergency? I think, um, I think there's a lot of truth to it. But I also think it can turn into a trap. I, I think it's important to be patient just because there's so much to learn before you might have actual solutions and, and be able to actively contribute. But at the same time, I think waiting till you know everything can be a bit of a trap because I've also sort of met people who said, oh, yeah, I used to be into that. But, you know, you learn and then you realize that things are expensive and it's just not going to happen. And you just got to move on. And <laughs> not in those exact words, but, you know, you know how this is turning out. <laughs> there's a little bit of there's a little bit of um, jadedness that I think comes with every profession. And and in ours, this is sort of the burden that we need to carry, which is that we have to keep pushing for things to get better. It's a bit of a blessing to be naive and optimistic where, you know, when we start off in, in grad school with these ideas, and it can be really great to be able to carry it through. I think that's that's definitely a goal of mine to be able to carry it through as far as I can in this profession and outside of it. And I'm not going to lie, I have already in the last three years since graduating, lost it and found it again. <laughs> I think I think it was precisely when you invited me to be on this podcast where I was like, oh, yeah, I used to care about that. What's going on? <laughs> so I think I think this thing just has a journey. That's that's the truth of it. Um, but I think it's very important to plant some seeds to sort of have these reminders through our career so that we can stay true to what we are actually passionate about and maybe make a dent someday. Yeah, that's why it's so important to have a posse, right? Like a community. So <laughs> when you when you when you want to just take a pause because you're burned out or not even burned out, just disillusioned or disappointed or depressed, whatever the emotion is, like 
someone comes along and reminds you, not only did you used to care about it, but you have a lot to say about it and, and, and a lot of um, smart ideas about what we could do. So that's wild. Okay. All right, Ava, what, what is patience in an emergency? Um, you know, I am not known to be a generally patient person. I'm not patient when I know my values are directed in a way where what is happening in front of me is not aligning and there are ways to change it. And so when it comes to this type of climate change in the built environment topic, I see it as the analogy of, you know, you put a frog in a cold pot of water and you turn the heat up, right? I, I think there's just respectfully, there's been a lot of frogs in the water um, and I'm a new frog that just got put into this water. And for me, it's boiling and I'm not comfortable in this pot of water and, and it needs to stop. I feel the same way as you, Julie. Like I, there's been days where I'm like, huh, I used to like every day talk about <laughs> climate change and like the world is, you know, falling apart in our industry because we are making it this way. You know, I, I would say all these things that I still feel are true. And when you get into the day-to-day of life, you're, you're really just trying to figure out where you fall into all of it. And um, I've learned to give myself some grace and to allow myself to do that. Something that I've learned through working in activist circles with some of my co-organizers and designers protests is everybody has a part to play in the revolution and your part might not be the loudest part it might be but you also can't play every role in her thesis presentation ava made a land acknowledgement this was before the university of maryland worked with local piscataway elders to write an official land acknowledgement and since these are becoming more common lately, we decided to ask her about it. I have some complicated feelings these days about land acknowledgements and how it's just not enough. Yeah. Um, but I haven't really found a good way to, to update that. The onus is on those like myself who choose to do these land acknowledgements to, to talk more about what it means and then take that next step as well. Um, part of that is, that, you know, the acknowledgement is I am I'm designing this project on land that, you know, has gone through so much history and at its origins, the humans that first walked on this land, you know, have had many harms done to them in the name of white colonial growth. And the next step is in my career is taking that acknowledgement and trying to answer the question, how do we, how do we become the stewards of this land in a way that honors indigenous folk that are from that land, right? Uh, really, like you said, these indigenous folk are still here. They haven't gone anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the numbers might be fewer. 
but they're still here and uh, they still have voices that we need to be listening to and their traditions still understand this land better than some of us could. Juhi's project would be built with an engineered wood product that's all the rage now in sustainability circles. I asked her what makes mass timber so much more environmentally friendly than, say, steel, which has a high recycle content, or concrete, which can be made with fly ash, which is a byproduct of power plants. She spoke about the ability of wood to sequester carbon dioxide, a powerful greenhouse gas responsible for global warming. Trees are considered a carbon sink, since they take it in and convert it to oxygen and cellulose for however long they're standing in their forests. The sort of main material in mass timber, should just be timber itself, is just coming from trees that are effectively sequestering carbon from the atmosphere, rather than contributing to that carbon cost and trapping that carbon away. And so when you start to look at a mass timber building of any size, it's effectively just storing away that carbon for the entire period of that building. I think the numbers were like like basically a fourth of the carbon cost of, hmm. of a steel and concrete hmm. building. But I pointed out that standing forests are just as valuable in carbon capture and storage as a timber building would be, not to mention providing habitat for countless species. They moderate climate, they make soil and oxygen, they provide a lot of services we don't usually account for. I'm wondering if you thought about whether there could be any downside to this sort of widespread adoption of mass timber, or is it the case of the lesser of evils in a way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a very important thought. The most sustainable architecture is no architecture at all. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, we are definitely sort of requiring more of the earth and, and its resources than than we should be with our current lifestyle and our way of building cities. Um, but yes, this was very much an approach of the lesser evil. I think I thought of these forests as at their very core being renewable resources. And so I hope and expect that as we go forward, we will have much more drastic measures that we take as a society to work towards climate action. But this was a first step. There's an example of how this is being done in Japan. Um, Japan actually does a really good job at using the resources that it has and reusing the resources that it has. And if you ever have a chance to check out Japan's forests, they're beautiful. And a lot of those forests are timber forests that are slated for construction. And, and you wouldn't even be able to tell because they do such a good job of planning out how much they chop down, how much they're using, and how much they're replanting. We just have to change how we think a little bit and how we consume. Oh, I love yeah. hearing that. That's so good. It's so great because, you know, when I was your age, when I was in school, I mean, we didn't even think to have these conversations. Nobody was asking these questions. Where are the materials coming from and what's the impact on the on the planet? in any way, whether it's on the climate or on the local ecology or any of that. And so it makes architecture even more complicated than it already was. But it's so important because these systems are very complex. Um, and you can't 
you can't do better if you don't know what you're doing already. We asked Ava and Juhi both, do you see yourself as part of a movement? And if so, how would you define it? And how do you think it's going? I think from the 70s, when the environmental movement really kicked off, it was, believe us, this is this is a thing, climate change, acknowledge it, it's real. Um, and even now, you know, of course, there are people who still say it's not, but I think overall, everyone sees it now, they feel it now, that's not really the conversation anymore. And so I think I'm part of this movement of people who are saying we need to put the action in, you know, we, we have to be biased towards action. But I think part of professionalism that limits us in this movement, and that is there's some BS out there about being too nice when these problems are out there. And we just need to talk about it. And people just don't because it feels unprofessional. So asking the questions in your firm, for example, hey, what are we doing about sustainability? Because I'm not feeling it to the point that I want to. So can we talk about it? Maybe don't say that day one. <laughs> but I think it's really getting excited about Gen Z getting into the workforce and being the person that's like, yes, say it, say it. I'm here. I'm ready for you to say it so I can say it. So we all start saying it. That's where this movement is going. And I, I hope by saying it enough, we actually do something about it and we don't just become like our parents. I actually echo a lot of what you're saying, Ava. I, you know, very much think I am part of the movement and I am also in a phase and hope to always be in the phase of asking questions and challenging the status quo. That's something that I've actually started asking or certainly did ask at my job interviews before I joined this firm because I was in a place where I was starting to get really frustrated by what was being marketed versus what was actually being practiced by different firms. So, so yeah, similar to you, I think the way my movement is progressing is that I'm learning more and more where I can plug in. And with the knowledge that I do have, I am asking questions from where I'm standing. And my hope is to continue doing that and to not lose faith in my place in the movement. I just hope that I can continue to be a part of the movement and that my role can increase and become stronger as I learn more and more how I can plug in. When we asked Ava and Juhi, how are you building hope? Ava surprised all of us. My last name, Omibar, means hopeful in Persian. And so there's a heavy burden that comes with that in some ways where, you know, it's, it's kind of something I have to remind myself on days where I don't feel it at all. And I think, how, how can I live up to this family name when there are just so many things happening that are going against hope? And part of that is just spreading the word. Like if all I can do is spread the word that we can do something and that inspires one person to talk to somebody else and then they do something small, 
that's my small contribution. How so, lucky that your surname translates into hope. That's just that's insane. <laughs> that is crazy. Hopeful. Wow. And I didn't even know that when I invited you on the podcast. <laughs> You're our, you to be our mascot. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> or not our mascot, our, our touchstone, right? Our, our muse. <laughs> Brand ambassador. Yeah, brand ambassador. There you go. Yeah. I would say I am building hope by taking small steps in the direction of what I hope to achieve over the course of my life. But I'm also building hope by remembering to recharge myself with other things that make me happy in life when my goals may not go as planned. I think that's just an important component to my mental well-being which in itself is essential to me building hope in the future. Thank you for listening to this episode of Building Hope. Next time, we'll dig into environmental justice. Building Hope is... Julie Gabrielli, Director. Vincenzo Perla, Research Assistant. Maisha Islam, graphic designer. Rona Cobell, editor. Raymar Toison, music. Hannah Zozobrado, assistant producer and social media head. Gabriela Feinberg, technical director and producer. You can find images of these great projects on our YouTube channel at Building Hope Pod. Visit our website, buildinghopepodcast.com, for show notes, transcripts, guest bios, and curriculum materials. We're also on Instagram at Building Hope Pod and on Substack at Building Hope. Thanks for listening and sharing. This project is supported by a Faculty Student Research Award from the Graduate School, University of Maryland, as well as grants from the University's Sustainability Fund and the School of Architecture Planning and Preservation.